I do lots of work around oracy and you can see the kids almost grow an inch taller, you know, through this work. And they start to think differently about themselves, differently about what they can go on to achieve in the future. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. And then, and that confidence opens more doors than anything, than any set of GCSEs. If you have self-belief, you know, you, you will take the world by the scruff of the neck and, and you will go on to achieve great things. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello, friends, and welcome to a special episode of the Rethinking Education podcast, which features a conversation in which I found myself on the receiving end of the questions for a change. So this is a cross post of a conversation that I had recently with Fabienne Vales, someone I met through the Rethinking Education Mighty Network. Fabienne is the host of a wonderful podcast called Flourishing Education, which I really recommend checking out if you haven't done so already. Fabienne is a brilliant, intuitive interviewer who lets the conversation go where it will. She describes them as perfectly imperfect conversations, which for someone who likes to plan out my podcast conversations quite meticulously was slightly unnerving at times, but it made for a fascinating and in places quite emotive conversation about, well, rethinking education, funnily enough. I would like to express my thanks to Fabienne for taking the time to speak with me. I've really enjoyed listening back to this conversation this week, and I hope you do too. Okay, over to Fabienne. and welcome to another Imperfectly Perfect Conversation. Today I'm talking to Dr. James Mannion. So uh, James is Director of Rethinking Education. Um, there is actually a Rethinking Education Mighty Network and a podcast that I will put in the, the description for the podcast that you can just go and check out. Please you know, go and check and become a, a member. This is how I met. Uh, James. Um, and uh, James also works at the Institute of Education UCL. So very warm welcome to another podcast, James. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Mm, yeah, so am I. So rethinking education. Why do we need to rethink education, James? Oh my goodness, you've gone straight in for the big one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, wow. So that, that phrase, rethinking education, has been with me for a long time. Um, I, have, I have a consultancy and that's called Rethinking Education. And so that sort of predates the podcast and this community that you, that you mentioned just now. Um, and I mean, I think that it, it predates my entry to the profession as well. You know, I, I don't think that many people are would would say that the, the education system by which you know I, I'm really talking about the schooling system is perfect you know um or even perfectly imperfect you know I think it's probably quite a long way short of 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 even that um and my my sort of decision to become a teacher 
was shaped by my desire not just to teach but to change the way that the education works I could sort of see it from afar um, and just you know you don't have to know much you just have to look at the news <laughs> to realize that things aren't going as well as they as they might be um, and one thing that really shaped my my thinking before I became a teacher was that I worked for a while for the probation service just as a typist I, I was a it was I was temping as a, as a typist and it was my job to type up pre-sentence reports so when somebody has um committed a crime they you know and been found guilty of it then then they have an interview with a probation officer and they write up a report about you know what was the backstory of like what led them to commit this crime and then they send that to the judge to inform sentencing and so over and it was my job to type up these pre-sentence reports really and so over a period of months I had this incredible insight into the life stories of all of these people whose lives had gone off the rails and and it was it wasn't major crime that we were working on in my desk. It was basically like people who were shoplifting to support their addiction to whatever it was, to drugs or alcohol or something. And there was usually some trauma in the background, and that was it. So so I sort of noticed that there was a kind of a pattern where people seemed to have been dealt a difficult hand. You know, there would often be you know good stuff going on in their life. They had a job, flat, family, friends, whatever it might be. Something bad would happen. Some horrible thing. The the the, the bad stuff that life deals us sometimes. You know, um, they lost their job. Somebody died. You know, the relationship broke up. Whatever a family broke up, and then there would be this like total inability to cope with with you know life's knocks, as it were. And um, and then they would fall down this familiar route of sort of, you know, drinking or taking drugs to numb the pain or whatever. And, you know, then they get addicted and then they get into debt and they lose their money. And, and it's just this so many people fall down that down that crack, if you like, in life, um, like hundreds and hundreds of them just in my town alone. And. So, and I was thinking about all of these people and thinking about, you know, like like some of them have been born into horrendous, you know, like childhood circumstances that you wouldn't wish on anyone. And the cards were stacked against them from the start. But that doesn't mean that their life has to go that way. And I was thinking, you know, um, all of those people went through the school system, or at least the majority of them, unless they were homeschooled or whatever, um, went through the school system. And so like, there was a there was a window of opportunity. We had like a 10-year window of opportunity into every young life to help to shape them and to help them to prepare for dealing with life's knocks, you know. And I was wondering to what extent do schools do that? And to what extent do schools actually make things worse often in the way that they that they um are structured and the way that they emphasize certain things um over other things and so right from the outset i've, I've been interested in rethinking and reshaping and reforming education um and i mean there's so many yeah there, there's so many answers to that question i don't know if i could really do it just as i could just literally spend the next hour listing all of the things that I see that are wrong. But the, the the flip side of this conversation is that it's that there are lots of people that partly who I've met through this mighty network and through the podcast and just through my own experience who are rethinking education, not just, you know, from outside of the system in setting up alternative schools, but inside the system as well. Some really inspirational teachers and head teachers 
who are reshaping lives and reshaping education and having a hugely profound impact on young people's lives. And so this is not just some sort of armchair discussion about, you know, like, I wish the world was different. Like, it is already happening. Rethinking how education is is a narrative that's already woven throughout the world. And so I'm really interested to join people together and to so that they can see one another and cross-pollinate and share ideas um, and see if we can accelerate the rate of change. Um, because, as I say, you know, a glance at the news would suggest that we could do with a little help on this planet of ours. Mm, I so agree with that. And I interviewed, actually on the podcast, I interviewed uh, Stu Evans, who's the director of Approve, um, and he you know, what he was saying was really, is really echoing what you're saying. So the fact that there are young people who start life with, you know, if your mummy is a heroin addict, then automatically that will have a massive impact on your brain development. And so you're going to arrive in secondary school age 12 with cognitive abilities of a six or a seven year old. Um, and yet, you know, the system expects every single 12 year old to be exactly um, the same individual with the same cognitive abilities. Um, and, you know, what you were saying about your own experience, I think I call, I call that, you know, falling off the conveyor belt. Or, you know, I, I've said many times on the podcast that I've really felt that when my son, my eldest, started secondary school, um, I was standing on the edge of the harbour, putting him on this cruise liner with all the, uh, these other kids and watching him sail off in, on this journey that I'm not part of, he has to get on with. Um, and I often feel that, you know, some of the kids fall off or jump off because they don't want to be on that cruise liner. Um, and that sometimes they're thrown aboard or they're not. And it's like sinking and, and, you know, and swim or because there's enough on this cruise liner to keep them going. Yeah. Um, and obviously, unfortunately, the effects of those. So, so the system, we talk a lot about what's not working in the system or, you know, what's working for some. And I think it is working for some. I don't know whether you agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Probably, maybe even a majority, certainly around half to two thirds seem to seem to sort of do OK. Uh, my son is one of them. I heard you mentioning in, in a previous conversation that you had as well, Fabian, that that you described one of your children as like a square peg in a square hole. Um, and that really made me think of my son. You know, he is really happy. And I've talked to him about alternative provisions. You know, I used to work at the Self-Managed Learning College in Brighton, where, as you, you know, you recently spoke with Ian Cunningham, um, where the young people can literally self-manage. They can do what they want, when they want. And I've you know, spoken to my, my son about it. He's in year 10 now and sort of said, you know, this thing is there if you're interested. Then, you know, and he's just not <laughs> even slightly. He's like, why would I want to change my whole life, my whole sort of social situation? And he's he's happy and he's fine. And so absolutely, you know, and that's the thing that like, I don't think that things are, are that wrong in a, in some sense. I don't think that it would be that hard to, to tweak the system so that it also is good for that other third, you know? I don't think that that would be that hard to do. Mm. And I think I think also we could make it even better for our, you know, not that I, I like 
And my son gets really frustrated when I say, but you're not perfect, because um, of course he hears me talk a lot about education through the podcast and now, and I, and I don't know if it's because he's half French, but there's a bit of a revolutionary in him. <laughs> and so he's like, well, we need to change things because it's not perfect. So, you know, he's in year eight and um, the school he goes to, he's had to ch- choose his options um, and he was really, really keen on this iCreative Media um, uh, option that is a Cambridge cert- certificate as opposed to uh, a GCSE. Um, and obviously because he's he's uh, academic, um, in fact, very academic, you know, he's part of the what you would potentially, you know, that, I know that some school called as HP. Um, so, you know, high potential for the, for the listeners who might not know. Mm-hmm. Um He's been told, no, you can't do the Cambridge certificate. You can only do GCSEs. And you can imagine, knowing what he knows, he's like, where is my choice? Where is my voice? <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. And and that's they're very, very good questions to ask. And it's important, you know. And, and that's what's interesting is the way that it sort of it goes both ways. Like not only, are, and I'm sure that there are other children who might want to do, for example, GCSE history at his school or, you know, certainly at schools that I've worked in um, and they've not been allowed to because they're going to make the school's results look bad. And so that's what people often think of when they think about options um, that, you know, students who aren't HP um, are going to bring the school's results down. So their options are restricted, but the HP kids are as well because they don't get to choose, you know, whatever their heart tells them they want to pursue. So that's ridiculous, isn't it? Like we need to change the accountability system so that schools aren't incentivized to, you know, to treat kids like that. It's not like, you know, what can we do for you? It's like, what can you do for the school? It's just so clearly wrong-headed. And that's, you know, a marketization question, isn't it? The, the fact that schools are competing in a league in a league table and now in international league tables, um, that's just ridiculous and not appropriate, is it? For, we're talking about human development here. They, they're not just performing little, you know, like zoo animals that, you know, can sort of, you know, they're to make the zookeeper look good, um, you know. Um, yes, yeah, and it's, and you know, it's, I've got nothing against the school because I think the school he goes to is actually a really, really outstanding, amazing school and they do so many great stuff. So I agree with you. I think part of, for me, part of the problem with the system is that there is so much accountability, but also that because, you know, I I listened to the the amazing talk you had, you know, the on Saturday with with the young people and in a lot in that conversation. Um, And for the listeners, I'll put a link to that amazing conversation if you want to listen to the young people talk. Um, But Lottie was talking about marketization of education. Um, And and I guess, you know, being working in higher education and you work for UCL, so you'll see that we talk about marketization of education in higher education because now students have to pay you know, nine thousand pounds or you know plus to join their studies. Yeah. But until recently, I'd never, you know, until sort of like well, last year really, from COVID and sort of starting to do the the podcast and asking questions, I'd never re- related the 
um, that marketization in secondary and in primary schools. So, and, and maybe our like, parent listeners might not have realized that's the case. So, would you want to explain what we mean by marketization of education and um, and why it's important as parents and young people to realize what's going on? Because one of the things I sort of I became really acutely aware is how I'd never questioned the system until recently. So, you know, moving away from Bristol, central Bristol, to go to, um, you know, where we live in the countryside, to be in the catchment of a small, um, you know, very small local school with like 100 intake altogether, um, and this outstanding secondary school. And that is part of that marketization and the system, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll try to to answer that question. It's not something that's my, you know, it wouldn't be my my topic on mastermind. Um, so this is like people often often link this to this idea of neoliberalism. Um, and there's some really good talks. I think it might also be good. There's a couple of good talks by Stephen Ball, who's a professor at my university, who's written very well about this and about the, the culture of what he calls performativity, that it's all about performance and metrics and so on, and like measuring people as though they are just like, like data points. Um, and that's a really key point. And um, um, he talks about neoliberalism. I mean, it's a big idea, you know, it's like it's, it's an economic idea. Um, and it's used to, you know, so for example, you know, um, privatizing things that used to be a part of the state. So like privatizing the rail and privatizing aspects of the NHS and so on are all part of this sort of ideology. And it and it occupies what Stephen is really good at explaining is how like, this is, you know, it's, it's appropriate in some places like markets, you know, are markets and therefore, you know, it's, that it's, it's appropriate there. But human beings are not widgets, and we don't behave in that way. And, and when when you bring in targets like that, you you know, a school has got to meet certain metrics. Let's say a floor target um, that they need to get a certain percentage over, you know, over a certain grade in order to not be on the naughty step, you know, to 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 get funding and to you know get a good offset grade and so on then they're going to start behaving in ways that will maximize the likelihood that that will happen, regardless of what happens along the way. You know, that becomes the aim of the school now is to meet this floor target. And so things like we were just talking about, about restricting the options that young people can have uh, happens. And this happens, you know, this has happened in the health system as well, where, you know, when it was during the new labor years and they brought in lots of lots of targets that people had to hit and they started and it led to all kinds of unethical practices where they were you know they were they were booking uh, appointments when people when they knew that people would be on holiday so that they would then have to reschedule them but it would make the waiting list look like it was less bad oh wow yeah and 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 um you know they were doing things like cutting the taking the wheels off uh, trolleys and reclassifying them as beds so that it, they weren't considered to be waiting reclassifying corridors as wards <laughs> so that people weren't considered to be waiting so so this this happens all the time and so it's essentially just the the application of these of these ideas about competition into this social space and so things like I mentioned league tables a while ago, that was probably one of the first major ones where schools are all competing against one another. And, you know, exams are a part of this and the way that exams are graded 
you know, it doesn't have to be this way. You know, there are other ways that we could assess young people, but the way that it's set up is that they're all in competition for a certain amount of grades. There, there is only so many A grades to go around. Um, and they're all in this like Hunger Games style competition and some of them lose out. And we know that one third of them fail, right? Like one third of them get grades one, two or three in English or maths, um, which by definition means it's a fail. You have to retake it if you get those grades. Um, and we see it in other things like performance related pay, where that, you know, and that's just a terrible idea. You know, it doesn't doesn't incentivize people at all. And it just it, it makes people sort of become less willing to share ideas. You know, if you're a teacher, say, and you've got some fantastic resource or some some fantastic way of teaching that helps your your young people to to achieve really high grades, but you know that you know that, that there's a pay review coming up, and you think, well, I'm not going to share that with the rest of the department because I want my pay review. You know, and and so it incentivizes people to behave in very selfish ways. And it's just wildly inappropriate to 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 have these market based ideas in in education. Um, it just is is not suitable. So, yeah, I, I really recommend that Steve that you look at Stephen Ball's talks. I'll send you yeah. a link because he talks about the way that this this isn't just an economic idea, and he's saying it's not just that it's inappropriate for social. Um, you know, for social policy, but the, it changes who we are. It changes fundamentally how we think of ourselves, you know. So as an academic, he's talking about, you know, he's measured by, you know, the impact that he's had and the the, the REF, you know, the research evaluation framework exercise, and everybody's judged according to how much impact they have and what the what the impact factor of the journals that they publish in and how much grant money they've brought into the to the university and it's just you know they 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 also are just like you know points on a spreadsheet to be weighed on the you know in the balance of things and this is just such a a, a sort of bleak view <laughs> of what it is to be human you know that everything's measurable so I think that we need to fight back against it, you know, with with everything that we can muster because it cheapens our experience of life. This 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 view of things. Mm, yes, and it fits in so well with what we found, what Dominic and I have found in How to Grow Grown Up when we wrote it and we interviewed young people. Is that actually um, there is, you know, that what young people say is that they feel. Um, they have to compete. They they've got you know uh, perfectionism, fear of failure, imposter syndrome. Um, what I've I've labelled comparatitis. So they tend to compare to each other to to the other person always in a negative way. Um, and and it, even our society, in some effect, is is also saying that. So Dominic and I in the book say, well, look at. Um, you know, if you don't believe us, we we fostering competition in our young people almost in a insidious way because you know, you would switch on your TV, you watch you know Great British Bake Off, it's a competition, ice skating the competition, singing the competition, dancing the competition, finding love, you have to go on this special desert island, <laughs> um, you know, and and that like you were describing with the teachers is literally saying, we've got to be in fear, we've got to be scared, you can't, you know, it's about competitiveness, individualism, so like Darwinian theories to the max, right, survival of the fittest. Um, and how is that going to work? Because we're not going to want to collaborate if we feel we're in fear and our life is, is 
away. Yeah, yeah. And you can see how these ideas, it's not just shaping our view of ourselves, but you can see how they shape the way that society works or doesn't work. This idea that that children are competing and for, for, for grades. So it's a better than system, isn't it? Like it's like who can do better than other people. And that's you know, that that phenomenon where, where children sort of bend their elbow around their work in class so that the neighbor can't see what they're doing, so that they can't don't give away their competitive advantage because they know the answer to question four, you know. Um, and so people who do well in that system, the, the, the people who succeed in that system, by definition, are people who have been rewarded and incentivized for, for having that better than other people mentality. And it's essentially an individualistic, you know, uh, selfish way of seeing the world that like, I'm not here to help that kid next to me understand question four. I'm here to, you know, to use my advantage to, to for my gain. And then if you sort of zoom out a little bit and you think they you look at the people who succeed in that um, in that world, who, who get top grades, who go to the top universities and go on to occupy positions of power in society, you know, some of the people that we see in, you know, in politics, for example, at the moment, behave in unbelievably selfish ways, you know, then we see so much example of this with you know, the recent procurement of PPE, personal protective equipment during the COVID crisis and how much of that, I don't know if you follow the Good Law Project, the, a group of lawyers who are taking the government to court currently over um, mismanagement of public money because they're just sending, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds down the VIP lane, they call it, to, to basically just funneling off money to their friends. And, you know, one guy bought his, <laughs> bought his parents, like, you know, essentially a Tudor home to live in, like hugely expensive home. And he was like, yeah, I've had a good pandemic sort of thing. Um, and it's just outrageous. And, and you know, a while ago, there was a politician. Do you remember there was a guy called Stephen Byers who was caught? Um, uh, there was some uh, journalists who were pretending to be lobbyists and they were essentially asking, you know, can you get me a, a, you know, a seat at that dinner where the chancellor is going to be sort of thing. And he described himself. He said, I'm like a cab for hire. So he was like, my job is basically just to take money and I will buy you access to, to you know, powerful, important people. Um, and there's so many examples of this, you know, and we, like, it's not surprising, you know, that, that, that's my point is that, you know, if you look at the way in which we incentivize young people to behave in selfish ways through this competition-based system, it's, it couldn't ever have been any other way that we're going to see all of this selfish um, behavior in public life. Mm, and I think, you know, one of the things I was sort of reflecting on the other day and saying to my husband is also within that, it's so much easier to just the them and us. So if you divide that way as well. So one of the things that I really noticed is, I, just, I, I assume you, you probably saw it as well, but um, they gave a pay rise to teachers recently, but they gave a higher pay rise to NQTs, to newly qualified teachers, compared to the older, more experienced teachers, because they, you know, they said, oh, they need it. So I think it was something like 3% for the NQTs and 1% for the old, older, more experienced teachers. And imagine what that does in terms of the profession, in terms of dividing people. And I just can't comprehend. I guess it's because of the values I, I hold there. I'm like, well, 
why are you gonna because then the the older more experienced teachers are gonna look at that and think well hang on a minute what does this mean yeah um yeah I yeah mean, it's so different from what you're trying to do with the network for example like they're creating the mighty network and having those conversations that's the opposite um although i think for me you know you just was talking about rethinking education i think one one thing that's really important is talking about the opposite so if we're in fear then we tend to create competitiveness um you know all of those things that i mentioned but if you if you focus on what i call love then you have more of collaboration cooperation compassion and from that you can create some amazing things right yeah 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 absolutely and that that's something that i think that i, I don't know whether this might be an english thing like that like people really shy away from using that word love they, they somehow think that it's sort of inappropriate to say, like, I love the children that I teach. They sort of think, well, that's just, you know, makes you sound weird or something. But, you know, with like the first episode of that, that campfire conversation that you mentioned earlier, we called Where is the Love? Because, you know, there are there are some school leaders who use who use that language, but many of them don't. And many of them and maybe that's partly because many of them are locked into that fear based mindset. Because when you're a head teacher, you know, your job's on the line. You've got a lot of people who are depending on you. And the decisions that you make affect a lot of people's lives. Uh, and that's obviously a deeply concerning thing. And it's easy to act out of fear and just to think, you know, to respond to, you know, the school improvement partners who say things like, you need to just go around and observe all the teachers, tell them they're inadequate, tell them to pull their socks up or kick them out of the school and get other people in. And that's a very fear-based way to run a school. And to do you have to be a very courageous leader to to basically put your neck on the line, put your job on the line, and to say, I'm that I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna act out of love and I'm gonna, you know, make all of the people feel valued and I'm gonna start with wherever they are and I'm gonna help them move forward, you know, in love and support and kindness and compassion and curiosity. And we're gonna do it together. You know, um there's a there's there's a there's a deficit of that kind of thinking, I think, um, which is a shame. Um, mm -hmm. but you can see how it comes about. Yes. And like you were saying, and, and I know you've I've heard you say this on the podcast, and I completely agree with you, I guess, because we're both part of the system, but you know, a lot of head teachers and you know colleagues, we all want the best for for young people. But when you're part of a system, sometimes you feel like you're saying your hands are a little bit tight and tied, and you can't really Stay as much for, for fear of your job, and you know we all need uh, you know, economic stability, our own economic stability, to be able to uh, contribute to our communities, right? So it's finding that balance. Yeah, yeah. Stephen Ball calls it the micro politics of little fears. You know, the little things that keep you in your place. They're like, I might not get that promotion. If I speak out against what my school leaders are doing, if I speak out about what I see as unethical practice, then, you know, I'm, I won't get promoted. I'm not going to be favoured. I'm going to go into the little, book of, the little book of hate. You know, we used to joke about that at my school, but, you know, partly because we thought that there actually was one, you know, that there was like, there was a the naughty list of teachers who we weren't doing what the bosses wanted. And, you know, like... 
we've got bills to pay and fat mouths to feed and those things are important and they keep people in their lane and they stop you from from speaking out and they stop people from blowing the whistle when they see you know deeply unethical practices happening and you know things don't go well for whistleblowers generally unfortunately mm. um so again people are disincentivized from doing that um so yeah there's a there's a lot that we need to fix you know it is a it is a multi-layered problem um but there are some things that we can that we can look at you know if you just start from like general principles like like when we when i was saying that like, what would it take to to make things better for that for that one third for example um and i think that if you if you just made things more flexible like so so that you, you, you didn't have to like you were saying some kids have had you know adverse childhood experiences that mean that they're just not ready to do exams at the same time as all the other kids and to 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 put them on a level playing field or what is supposedly a level level playing field as in you know the exam day is anything but level because some of them have had you know every privilege that life can afford you and some of them have had the opposite of that and so it's in it just because it gives you a it gives you a reliable measure of where everybody is on that day that doesn't mean that it's a fair test it's anything but and so we could easily, I think, start to think about how we could introduce greater flexibility into the system. Um, I mean, there's one thing that that Ian Cunningham said when, it, when I interviewed him recently, which really I hadn't ever thought about before, but he said that he thinks that it's profoundly unethical to, to judge as a child and to mark their work unless they've asked you to do so. If they if they haven't asked you to do it, then just you know to to force somebody to to do a piece of work and then to grade it, cover it in red pen, and give it back to them when and they don't get any say over that over whether they want to take part in this process or not, is profoundly unethical and damaging, you know, um, and and you see it those those young people. They get the message, you know, like they get the message after a while that this just isn't for them and they switch off. And it's horrible when that happens. And I've seen it, you know, like for my, for my master's, this was a number of years ago now, but I, I was a science teacher and I was looking at, um, at self-esteem and self-efficacy for science. So just in case people aren't aware, so self-esteem is like this global sense of like, you know, how do I feel about myself as a person? And then self-efficacy is essentially your self-esteem with regard to a particular domain. So I was looking at self-esteem and self-efficacy for science and looking at ability grouping. Um, and, and so that year, as, as it turned out, I, had, I was teaching two groups in year eight, a top and bottom set, and two groups in year 11 as well, a top and bottom set among other classes. And I'd sort of just noticed anecdotally that the kids in the bottom set in the year eight were just as enthusiastic for science as the kids were in the top set. Like they were really into it and they would ask loads of questions. You know, they'd be coming up to you at break time with little, you know, newspaper articles about space that they'd torn out, you know, at the weekend that they wanted to share with you that, you know, we discovered some new galaxy somewhere. Like they're really interested and they they were loving the experiments. They you know they they loved science. They were still in the sort of the honeymoon period, if you like, of you know using Bunsen burners and what have you. And then, you know, you look at the year 11s, and it's not like that. You know, I was teaching a year 11 group that that year, and it was just painful. Like the, the bottom set group, they just you know were not up for being there. They didn't want to make eye contact with you even. Like they just felt bad because they've been assessed 
at least six times a year in that subject and in all of their other subjects, if not more. Um, and every time there's an assessment, they know before, they're not they're not thinking, oh, maybe this time, maybe this time I'll really I'll really crack it. They know that they're gonna do badly because they always do. And so they stop trying because that's the only the only choice that they have at that point is that they stop trying because if you don't try, then you can't really fail because, you know, you're like, OK, I failed, but I didn't try. I didn't I don't care about science. I didn't try in that test. I didn't do any revision sort of thing. And that's their only choice at that point is to opt out or to just carry on being told that they're no good. Um, and so it's just it's brutal. Um, and 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 so and the, the data that I collected, it was only a small study, but I found the same thing that that you know there was no difference in self-esteem or in self-efficacy for science in, in the year eight kids. Um, they you know they felt fine about themselves as people. They felt fine about um, about themselves as scientists. Um, but by the time they get to eleven, it wasn't only their self-efficacy for science that had gone down, but their global sense of self-esteem. Like they and and it wasn't that the that the top set kids, that their scores had gone any higher, they remain the same, but the, the kids in the bottom sets felt bad about themselves as people now. You know, they got the message that, that, that this was something that was just like a part of them. This wasn't about science. This was like, I am not a worthwhile person. Um, and that was that heartbreaking moment you hear on in the conversation that you mentioned that I had at the weekend with those young people and one of them said that that they feel like the classroom is like a recycling bin and that if you don't learn in the right way that that you're tossed aside like a piece of trash to rot was the phrase that he used and it's just my goodness oh god even thinking about it now it just makes my stomach churn like it's just we're making kids feel like that about themselves it's not cool it's just it's heart-wrenching and it's so upsetting uh and I, yeah, I've seen it with, and I'm sure you've seen it at uni, they arrive with this identity, so this I am. And, and you know, it's so difficult to change your identity. It's like who you are, it's the core of who you are. Um, and if you're, it, they're not stupid. You know, you can label the groups one, two, and three, or three, you know, three, two, and one. Yeah. They know, they know how... How that means, you know, so they then take that on board as uh, as as this is who I am. So, so Thomas uh, was saying, my, my my son was saying, I feel pigeonholed. That's what he was saying in his words. I feel like I don't have choice. I don't have a voice, but also I feel pigeonholed, which is you know that heart wrenching. You know, I can be tossed because I'm no good. I'm not, you know on that conveyor belt it's a little bit like it feels like a li little bit like the carrots you know that when you 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 take vegetables through a conveyor belt and the wonky carrots you just get chucked out because you're not quite straight and perfect yeah. for, the, for the system and it's that to me is as a parent you know, and I I wonder whether that the fact that we parents, you know, at a time when they're teenagers and their brain is transforming and is changing, that you know, we don't have a say, do we? So I've I've seen a lot. I've been reflecting on that recently. In the in primaries, there's so many innovations 
early years primaries. There's so many amazing people that I've interviewed on the podcast who do fantastic things to really build the self-esteem and the, you know, the, the that sense of self-efficacy in young people. Yeah. You'd sort of saying in year eight, they still have it. It's like, well, what what happened between year eight and um you know, like year nine, year ten, and year eleven. What happens? I know, I know that there's obviously the brain and the changes, and you know those 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 changes in young people are drastic, uh, and there are time, you know, moments of opportunities also that could then create massive issues in terms of mental ill health, etc. So we know that. But what else are we doing to to these young people that is called you know, that we could challenge, do you think? Yeah, I mean, the GCSE is is the obvious one. There's the thing that happens between year eight and year 11. Um, and that's, you know, and it's not just an exam. It's not just, um, you know, a test that they take at the end of year 11. The GCSE has such symbolic significance like kids hear about it from age four upwards they know this thing is coming they know that like everything is leading to this point and it's like that it's very heightened that their teachers talk in very very sort of heightened ways and they say you know this is really important this is going to be you know like the making or breaking of you you've got to work hard for your GCSEs and this is why you need to behave this is why you need to be on time this is why you need to come to school every day this is why you need to work so hard and, and on and on and on it goes um and so and and it, and it is a hunger game situation you know that there's one third of kids are going to get grades one two and three because that's pretty much how the grading system works it's a little bit more complicated than that but that is basically how it works um and and so they get this you know you can see why they get this this awful message about themselves and it lasts into into adulthood you know like one person who was in that bottom third um of people who who didn't pass their um their gcses or left school with very few very few qualifications is kate mcallister who is the like my very good friend and colleague and the co-author of, of the book that we wrote together fear is the man killer the person who i've worked with most closely over the last 10 years or so on developing you know new approaches to to teaching and learning and especially around learning to learn um and she is a force of nature that woman is my goodness like she's incredible she um has just done so many phenomenal things in in the world of refugee education most recently in the last five years or so and now setting up this this alternative school in the dominican republic called the hive um and you know to, to move to another country and to single-handedly set up a school during a pandemic you know uh, and make it work like the feedback that she's getting is phenomenal but in the podcast interview that I did with her a few weeks ago um you know she was talking about how she fe feels like some on some level deep down still feels like a failure and certainly did do for most of her life you know she couldn't shake that label that she was like you know a, a girl from Essex who didn't get any qualifications you know and that she just felt like that 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 label that had been put on her by that process at age, the age of fifteen or sixteen is still affecting her in her forties, regardless of everything that she's that she's learned about herself since then. Um, so this is so hugely 
Like this is not just a test and you think, oh, you know, you can resit it later on if you're not ready now sort of thing. Like this is shaping your idea of yourself of what you can go on to achieve in the future um, and your enjoyment of life, you know. And like I say, like it wouldn't be that hard. Like you don't have, like some people labor under this illusion that you have to have some people who fail of something in order for the passes to be to be worth something in order for the passes to be meaningful and you can sort of see why people think that right because you think like you know you don't just want prizes for all you know like you just like these are one of those sports days where there are no winners and everyone knows that there really were winners but you're just pretending like there weren't you can see why people would think that but it doesn't take very long to think your way out of that corner you know and to think actually you know, I, um, you know, I, I can play the piano a bit, not great, but, you know, I, I can get by, I'm in a band and it's it's enough to write songs with. Um, but I never did any, any qualifications. I didn't do my grades when I was a kid. You know, I didn't want to, my teacher didn't push me down that route and it, that was fine, but I can still play the piano pretty well. Not as, I can't play it as well as people who, who do do the exams and who go on to get grade eights. You don't have to have people failing piano exams in order to realize that some people are absolutely amazing at playing the piano. And it's the same in maths and the same in, you know, in every walk of life. Like we don't have to continue with this deeply, profoundly unethical, like compulsory assessment system in order to recognize brilliance and mastery within each of these domains. And so to come back to that thing that Ian Cunningham said, you know, I think that number one, it should be optional. I think that young people should be able to choose whether they take an exam or not. Um, and to choose what, what level they do it at as well. Music grades is a good example of something that, you know, you can, you can do it or not. You, you can choose. And also you can, you do your grade one first. And if you pass that, then you go, yay, I got my grade one. Maybe I'll do my grade two next, or maybe I'll, you know, do that in a year or so. And so on it goes. And, you know, I don't see why we couldn't have the same thing in maths and drama and, you know, PE and every other, every other area of life. You can choose whether to be assessed or not. And you can, and you, you go in at a, a particular level that's well suited. It's just about beyond your current level. And if you work and pass that thing, then you can pass it. But it's not a big deal if you don't, because then you, you sort of think, oh, well, you know, you get some feedback and you think, OK, I'll, I'll see if I can pass that next time. And sometimes, you know, you're going to get to a point where you think I can't get past grade four with geography for some reason. And that's, that's just me. I'm a grade four geographer and that's fine. And uh, there's loads of other things that I can try in life. And that's all right, you know. Um, and I, I don't think that it would be hard to reorganize school along those lines. Because then you're celebrating every every you know test. If you're going to have testing, every test that's passed is a celebration. It goes into someone's portfolio of what they can do. They're this whole sort of grading thing, like is like just so unnecessary. Um, and so it's not hard to think beyond you know the current system, um, so that we could actually do things that were you know, helping every young child. And we want to start with a principle, I think, you know, with the value of like, I want to find, to help every kid to find what they're good at, or at the mm -hmm. very least, what they're the least bad at, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and get help them to focus on that. And, and, and especially help them to focus on sp speaking and listening. Cause you know, unless you've like, got some disability, like everybody can learn how to, how to speak and listen to a really high degree. And that gives you confidence like nothing else, because 
when you're a confident speaker, that changes how people respond to you. It makes people listen to you. That changes your conception of yourself. I do lots of work around oracy and you can see the kids almost grow an inch taller, you know, through this work. And they start to think differently about themselves, differently about what they can go on to achieve in the future. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. And then, and that confidence opens more doors than anything, than any set of GCSEs. If you have self-belief, you know, you, you will take the world by the scruff of the neck and, and you'll go on to achieve great things. Um, and so it would, I think that we need to sort of start from that principle rather than sort of thinking, oh, should we do GCSE system or, or music grade system? Let's start from like, what do we want? You know, like, first of all, like do no harm, right? Like the Hippocratic Oath. If there are kids who feel like they're trash, then, you know, we're not meeting that basic level of, of provision. And so first do no harm, you know, like let's talk to kids, bring kids into the, into the conversation and like have an honest searching conversation about the harm that we are doing as a system. And I think it's important to recognize that, that it is as a system, you know, teachers, I, I, I'm a teacher, I'm married to a teacher. I spend most of my time <laughs> for better or worse debating and arguing things with teachers and working with them in other ways. And they're nearly always absolutely lovely, lovely people who are so giving and generous and who genuinely in the bottom of their heart want the best for every single one of their kids, full stop. You know, that, that's just a, a, a statement of fact. And yet teachers work within a system that make kids feel like that. You know, and so it's not, it's, we're not, I'm not laying this blame at the feet of teachers at all. You know, teachers are struggling in the system as much as anyone else. These are systemic problems and they require systemic solutions. Yeah. And I, one of the things that I've been arguing for flourishing education is the fact that flourishing, for me, a flourishing education requires flourishing students and staff. But I would also argue flourishing parents um, in a sense that I think, uh, you know, I've recently posted yesterday, I posted uh, something on LinkedIn around, I think for me, education is about lifelong learning. And it, it starts when we're born, it, it ends, you know, we stop learning when we die, basically, yeah. whether we, we know that or not. And you were sort of talking, right, you know, you, you sort of said, yeah, when I talk about education, I talk about schooling. I think part of the problem with the current schooling system is that those who fall off, uh, you know, the, the cruise liner, the whatever you convey about you, whatever you want to call it, these people you were talking about in the in the reports that, you know, sort of end up committing a crime, these people have fallen off and they have lost their love of learning. Mm. That ability as a human being that you will need because we learn. That's just like, that's a fact. It's that you, to grow and develop, you have to learn new things and expand. Um, like I just feel so so passionately like you that I think that ecosystem we all need to, in a way, it's quite difficult. Like not laying the 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 blame at the feet of any of anybody, and I feel quite strongly about that because if we start blaming, then people get their back off back up, don't they, and just go nothing to do with me. Um, but equally, I think it requires all of us to take a good hard look at ourselves. Um, that's not always easy, is it? To just sort of go, oh, I'm contributing to this system. 
Um, and how comfortable does that feel? That's what I've been asking myself. Okay, I'm part of this system, being in a higher education. How comfortable do I feel with this? Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, we are, you know, we're, we're in it. Where aren't we? We're all we're all a part of it, and you know the, when I was talking about systemic level change, that's a really interesting you know like avenue to go down because you know what does that look like? Um, it's it's a complicated question, and it and it doesn't necessarily um, involve politicians, um, and ideally you know like the 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 reform movement that i see happening and coming together and gaining momentum um it it can't involve politicians really because like the thing about politicians is that they just keep coming <laughs> you know yeah. they'll be the next one along and the next one after that and they all want to put their stamp on it and they will whatever it is that we you know if we, in some imaginary universe where we were able to persuade gavin williamson to you know, to to put into effect some of the I know some of the. <laughs> some Sorry, of the... listeners, I was shaking my head, and, <laughs> and and obviously James is responding to my to my non-verbal communication. You wouldn't be seeing that. <laughs> yeah, it was more of just like yeah, it was like a wide-eyed like incredulity that that you know that you could ever get anything through Gavin Williamson's ears. Um, but yeah, even if he was to implement you know the coolest set of, of reforms that you could ever wish for. The next person will come along and you know just change it because that's just what happens. You know, it's, it's tied to it's a political football. It's tied to the electoral cycle, and you know that's that's not the solution. That's not the solution. I'm not saying that it's that it's not a part of it. I think that we should try as far as we can to engage with policy and politics. Um, but lots of what I'm interested in is stuff that we can already do. You know, teachers can already do. Head teachers can vote with their feet and say, we're not doing SATs. You know, that's happened in the past. And if all of them do that together, like we're unbelievably powerful. Like what are they yeah. going to do? Like put all the teachers in prison. You know, that's not going to happen. You know, like we have absolute power in numbers. Um, and there are a number of things that that school leaders are already doing that are really courageous you know, and and that are changing the mold. Things like you know, um, teaching through the sustainable development goals, uh, decolonizing the curriculum, broadening you know the the curriculum beyond this sort of white Eurocentric view of history. Uh, there are so many things that that bold, innovative head teachers and and, and classroom teachers are already doing. And for the most part, <laughs> like people aren't watching. You know, Ofsted come around for two days once every four years. That's fine, you know. Put on a show for them if you want, but they're not there for the for the majority of the time. And so, you know, we're powerful. We're more powerful than we realize, and we can implement these changes already at a system on a systemic scale, if not, you know, with the um, explicit approval of our political masters. And I use that word in inverted commas. Yeah. And it's that beat for me. One thing is people say to me, why do you even bother? Like, you've got a job. You know, why Why are you doing even flourishing education? And I was like, but I cannot not do it. You know, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's about being the change you want to see in the world. And all of us have a part to play. So, like, you're, the amazing work you're doing with Rethinking Education Um 
that's all needed because all together that's how we're gonna bring bring about that change uh, you know because yeah. we all have that that, that particular contribution to make haven't we yeah yeah absolutely and i'm learning so much through this network somebody described it as being like a bat signal for like innovative educators to all sort of come together and to to meet one another and that's already happening you know so like a, a recent episode of my podcast uh was a conversation between so there's four incredible women i know you spoke with kath pratt recently mm, who set mm-hmm. up Sueni down in cornwall and three others kate McAllister, Haley peacock who's got a school a, a proudly progressive private school called atelier 21 and lucy stevens who set up a, a democratic school in london um recently and they they're doing it you know they're re, they're not just rethinking education they're redoing it and you know i'm really curious to find out how many more people are there out there who are like them you know i just happen to have come across those in this still quite a small but growing network of people that i set up in january this year and i've already come across you know lots of examples of people doing really incredible work um, and once we join together and we can see one another and we can, you know, realize that actually the strength in numbers and also be inspired, you know, you were talking about like, once you know it, you can't go back. Like I've just seen a number of people on Twitter who've listened to that conversation and then now walking around the towns that they live in, looking at buildings, thinking, could I set up an alternative to school in there? <laughs> yeah. And that is wonderful. You know, if we can, if we can, and there's really interesting work being done around like different funding models. So they don't have to be private and they don't have to be state schools either. There's all kinds of, you know, alternative ways of funding schools and alternative ways of conceiving them legally um, that, you know, we could spread like wildfire and have people setting up these alternatives and and just breaking out of the um you know out of the mold and, and i've certainly learned a huge amount from from speaking with people like naomi fisher who you you know another person that you had on recently we have many shared guests it seems on our podcast <laughs> yes. um i think there's a bit of synergy between our work uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah hugely but it's a wonderful thing you know that to to see that people are doing some really robust thinking about you know, what is needed here. And in the mainstream education debate in recent years, it's all become about knowledge, right? So like mm. the, the knowledge rich mm. curriculum is everywhere. And that was like a, that was like a sort of a, a rejection of this very sort of skills heavy agenda that was, that was around under the new labor years. Uh, and it's gone very hard in the direction of knowledge. And I was talking yesterday, I was on someone else's radio show about talking about learning to learn um, and the work that I've done. And she said, the host of the radio show said, obviously this needs to be done alongside, you know, a, a knowledge rich, you know, subject based curriculum. And I saw it was the first time that I said it, but I sort of said, well, hang on a minute. Does it? <laughs> Are you sure about that? Like, that's definitely what everybody seems to think at the moment. Everyone's talking about subject knowledge being really important. But why then is it that that homeschooled kids often perform better in tests than kids who go to all these subject rich lessons, knowledge rich, you know, subject lessons? Why is it that self-directed learning is a thing, you know, and that you can actually learn really effectively? You know, one of the kids who was on that call on Saturday was Kath's son, Locke. My goodness, I fell in love with him. I, <laughs> I, I texted, I texted Kath after afterwards and went, oh my God. It was just absolutely subliminal. 
I know. I look once and everything just wow. I know, I know. Nine years old and so like confident and knowledgeable. He'd been doing maths that morning on Saturday morning, you know, like, and he's like, as far as I know, he's not, I mean, he doesn't, he's not, he's never been to school. Like, how many kids, how many school kids get up on a Saturday morning? They've not been set any homework in it and just do maths for the love of it, you know, hardly any. And the bit when he said, um, that he was talking about the satisfaction that you get when you when you learn something that you've set for yourself. And he, do you remember him talking about moonwalking? <laughs> he said, like, I was so proud. I was so proud of myself when I finally learned to moonwalk. And he said it took him like a few months to get. This wasn't just like a day or two. It was like really, really complicated process that he went through to learn how to moonwalk. But my goodness, you know what a what a wonderful thing. Um, and so you know he's never been to school he's never sat in history lessons and geography lessons and maths lessons and yet he's this awesome kid who's knowledgeable and confident and funny and you know smart and interesting and you know I I just think that we can start to throw a wrecking ball at this the big ideas that underpin the schooling model you know I just I don't see that we do need this knowledge rich curriculum um, I know that people would argue vociferously against me on that, and I'd be really, I would welcome that conversation. But, uh, mm. you know, I think that we need to really deeply question that because it's just considered to be like the, 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 the fundamental truth that knowledge is really important and that teachers are experts and that without teachers, you know, young people wouldn't learn anything. And I'm just not sure that that's true, you know, and especially given that most of what teachers teach kids, they forget anyway, you know, within a few weeks of the exam. So I'm just, yeah, I think that... I think I wonder whether maybe what the way I view it is knowledge has its place, but it's a little bit like if you want a bird to fly properly, you need two wings. You need the, the knowledge, the wing of knowledge and the wing of wisdom. And for me, wisdom is about the the skills and and the competencies. So, uh, you know, we we've lots. You could see that he had those two amazing wings working so beautifully together. Because, um, like in terms of oracy, I mean, you were talking earlier on about how you, you you're going to work with people, helping them uh, being able to speak up. Nine, he could speak so much better than some of my uni students. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, surely, like you were saying on that podcast, you know, to that, on that radio show with that lady, you have, the, we, we can learn from each other, right? We can learn from what it is that is happening. And and also one thing you've just said about like the, the now we've, you know, Guy Claxton called that DICAR, you know, direct, direct instruction, knowledge rich sort mm. of approach as opposed to skills. And to me, it's like one pendulum swimming, swinging to the, to the next and to the next. Mm-hmm. So what if we took those two and brought them together? Wouldn't that work? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there are people who are interested in in having this conversation. It was interesting, like on my podcast, I speak to these these like very traditionalist people as well as you know people like Claxton, and um, and we talk about wanting to work towards a synthesis of these ideas, um, and and I think that yeah, I mean, I think that maybe even that is 
is just so, sort of like creating a problem where it doesn't need to happen. I don't think that there is some like perfect Hegelian synthesis that we can manifest in schools where we have knowledge and wisdom, you know, in perfect symbiosis because people are different, you know, people like people are different, schools are different, people develop at different rates at different ages in different parts of the world in different cultures. And so I think that we need to be much more responsive than that. Um, of course, knowledge is important. I think that the, the, what I would question is that it needs to be taught in a top-down way. Um, that's the thing, and that it needs to be predefined in a curriculum. I'm not. I'm not persuaded that that is the best way to go about about teaching knowledge either. And again, there's a there's a fascinating conversation to have here because some people would say, you know, the thing is that children don't know what they don't know. And therefore, we're sort of going to just widen inequality gaps if we if we just sort of like like some kids who who are get, who've got a very rich home life and they go and visit museums and they've got tutors and there's books in the home and all of that stuff. They're going to get that knowledge rich thing anyway, and disadvantaged kids don't. And that's a good question, and it's an important question to ask. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to you know just leave disadvantaged kids to fend for themselves and not ever. You know, tell them anything. There's a there's a nice idea called curated autonomy that we write about in our book, where you're like, you know, don't just leave them leave them to <clears throat> chance, but you sort of say, okay, so here's here are some ideas. So here's an example that I've sort of got at the back of my mind. Haven't really worked this out yet in terms of how a school might work and in, in terms of the timetable. But you could have like that process that your son was going through of doing options. Why can't you do that at the start of every year or the start of every term, even? Where you have a sort of, you know, a um, <clears throat> like a, a, a conference type event in the school hall, where the kids go around to different stalls and there's different teachers from different departments, and they're saying, you know, in the next term or in the next, you know, year, say, if you choose history, we're going to be looking at this, and here's why we think it's really interesting, or the, here's three options that, of history that you could choose that you could choose to study, you know. Um, and likewise in maths and likewise in history and drama and what have you. And, and, um, and then the kids choose, you know, and, you, and you, that, that's a negotiated process. So there's, there's curated autonomy. You're not letting them just study footballers, you know, for 100% of the time. But it's, so it's curated, but it's also negotiated with the young person and with their parents and carers so that you're sort of saying, you know, uh, you've done a lot of X recently and you haven't really looked at Y or Z why don't you try a bit of that this year? You could do a taster and just see if you like it. Cause you know, we want to make sure that you're a well-rounded person. And I don't think that any kid would, would argue against that, you know, um, and that, you know, this would be a negotiated thing. And I, I, it just seems to me that you could, you could organize a school in that way so that they're, they're continually sort of making informed choices about what they want to do and why they want to do it. And then I think that so many of the behavioral problems that we see in schools would just go away overnight because so much of this is because this is being done to them and the kid doesn't have agency. You know, if their only choice is to line up silently outside the classroom and to go in and do the, what is increasingly called the do now activity, the second they go in, it's like, do now, do this thing now. You know, they've got to sit on their chair, do the do now thing now, and then, you know, put their hand up if they ask the question. You know, they've, they've got a very, very narrow 
range of like acceptable behaviors and if they if they're a few minutes late or if they want to go to the toilet or get a drink of water they're not allowed and so they're not you know you can see why it is that so many kids kick off in schools because they're you know being treated like cattle and they don't have agency and they're not respected you know in that way and so um i think that if you allowed them a lot more choice a bit like the options process that happens in year nine but just make that happen every term from you know year five up upwards or year three upwards or whatever it might be you know i don't see why we couldn't do something like that i'd love to i'd love to sit down with a timetabler and sort of thrash it out and just see actually can we think about what how that would work in terms of the school day we've got eight history teachers we've got four music teachers what would how would that actually look in the context of a busy school life uh, it would definitely be harder to timetable that than it than it is to do the thing now. But you know, if efficiency is not a good excuse for for giving kids a a poor offer. I think no. And also, if the argument is to have well-rounded individuals, then surely <laughs> that's the that's the basis, right? Not just saying this is yeah, you're going to be rounded because I'm going to take you through this. Um, welch and just turn you into this well-rounded what i believe is a well-rounded individual um but yeah i would love to to see that but i think it like um you know when you said the lady on the radio was talking about knowledge rich what was her response because i'm quite curious about that i wonder what it was interesting actually she sort of said oh okay like she she accepted it she said that is an interesting challenge she didn't push back against it but she yeah she acknowledged it and she was like okay that's interesting um but she's really really nice person um who's who's been very influenced by the book which is lovely to hear and she's uh, gone a long way towards setting up a a learning to learn curriculum at her school she's in rome she's at an international school in rome um and they're setting up a learning to learn curriculum with discrete lessons um as well as you know tutor time stuff as well as it being infused through the through the um school so um she seems to be on board with it uh, to a certain degree but yeah yeah uh, it was it's a, it's an interesting thing and i want to start having that conversation with more of these like knowledge rich traditionalists and just you know really really push them on this you know everybody seems to be accepting that knowledge rich is the way to go and that it's all got to be delivered by an expert teacher like how sure are you you know how mm. sure are you and mm. and you know what if what if we didn't need teachers what if we what if we didn't need teachers what if we didn't need to have people delivering a curriculum because there wasn't you know it's not so you don't have to go back far into history to you know find a time when there wasn't a national curriculum and what's really interesting is that when you, Ian Cunningham put me onto this, there's a study looking at, at reading and numeracy skills in different ages of the population. And the generation who performs best in this sort of cross-generational exam test was 65 and over. And they are people who went to school before there was a national curriculum in the age of the so-called Plowden primaries, you know, these very sort of like child-centered primary schools in the 60s. And they're better at reading and writing than, you know, kids who went through the national curriculum, who went through national literacy hour and numeracy hour and phonics and all the rest of it. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm. And if it worked, then you would have you wouldn't have people in prisons with a reading age of ten, right? Would you? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, on the flip side, there was another there was another conversation that I heard of yours when you had Peter Gray on, mm-hmm. uh, and he was talking about reading, and uh, and he was saying that you know that you don't need to teach kids to read that they always learn to read. Uh, in the end, you know, they always sort of activate. And I was thinking, like, is that true? Because, you know, like in that case, why are there some people who are illiterate? Like you say, there are people in prison. There are lots of illiterate people in the world. And so I don't I don't think that that you can say that, that that you don't need to teach people to read. It might be that he would qualify that. Peter obviously isn't here to qualify it. Maybe he would say, then he's like, for example, at the Sudbury Valley schools that I know that he's been a part of, there are lots of books around and there are lots of older kids reading. And so there's sort of like a culture of reading. So maybe it's that, that when there's a culture of reading and that there are books around and when you've had reading modeled to you and you understand the value of stories, maybe in those conditions, you don't need to teach people to read. That might be what he would respond to that. But, um, you know, I'm not. I'm not totally laissez-faire. I, I. I do think that you know you need to teach kids some stuff, but you need to teach them to just to the point where they can, where they can do it themselves. You know, and and some kids are able to learn in a self-directed way very effectively and efficiently at age eleven, and at that point you you could ask, well, they don't need teachers now. You can if they want to do a GCSE, give them you know the past papers, give them the exam spec give them, you know, resources to use if they want to, you know, do an experiment, you know, they can do that, but you don't need to have them sitting in rows and telling them what to do and marking their homework every week. They can do it themselves, you know, and there's loads mm-hmm. of evidence of that. And the, mm-hmm. the kids who who go to Ian Cunningham's uh, place, this self-managed learning college, they're often like that. You know, I remember one boy who, who self-taught himself physics. I was, this, I was the science tutor at that place. Um, and he he asked me to to help him once, I think, in two years, and he got an A. You know, he didn't need my help at all. Um, but if he was at school, that wouldn't have been an option. You know, he just would have been made to sit in lessons and be taught stuff, even though he just didn't need it. Yes. And I think it's the balance is going back to what you were saying. It's about treating each in, each young person as an individual um, within that, you know, I, I, I talk about ecosystem within that ecosystem and just recognizing that they have their particular contribution to the ecosystem and just ha- and enabling them to to flourish that way. Um, and I think, you know, I, I guess what Peter often talks about is that intrinsic motivation, isn't it? It's, it's the fact that, uh, and I agree with you, I think that for me, young people, what young people, what I've shared with my, my two boys is, my role as a parent is to give you this see-through container. Like I, mean, I give you the structure, the 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 and the, and um, Ian Cunningham, Cunningham talks about that on, on my podcast as well. Is that that um, the routine and the you know knowing that you've got that support, and then as you get bigger, you know like more autonomous and independent we can expand that that uh, container and structure and what you create within like that root system and everything else is for you to create you can have that but knowing that you're safe and you've got somebody supporting you is really important I think yes yeah yeah absolutely and there's, there's another thing that's really interesting when we're talking about questioning the prevailing sort of ideas. There's a, there's this unquestioned assumption within schools that it's a good idea to help every kid get the best set of grades that they can possibly get. 
and that you know that that's like that, that there's a moral purpose to this you know that that grades you know qualifications open doors and therefore we should help every single kid and if they're going to get a b push them to get an a and if they're going to get an a push them to get an a star and in my experience of working with young people who aren't in that school system they often don't make decisions like that you know i, I remember talking to a girl at, at smlc who was, um, you know, very, very good at science, really quick to pick up concepts. And I can remember saying at one point, you could really, you could really nail this, you know, like the exam is six months away. If you work really hard at this, you could definitely get an A star. Uh, this was before the new numerical system had come in. And she said, I know. <laughs> She's like, thank you. It's nice to hear that. And I, I know that I could do that, but I only need a C to get into college and I've got other things on my in my life at the moment, and I don't really want to spend the next six months cramming for this test so that I can play this game and get a high grade. That I know that I could do that if I wanted to, but I don't need it. And so I'm just I'm happy with a C, and maybe I'll get a B if I have a good day, and I'm I'm okay with that, you know. And there was another boy who was who taught himself to speak Chinese, and somebody said to him, you know, why don't you do the GCSE in it? It's like it's in the bag. You'll get an A for sure. And he was like. Well, I don't need to get an A. I know that I can speak Chinese already. Like, why would I want to do that? Amazing. So that's interesting as well, isn't it? You know, that that this this fundamental, like unquestioned assumption that, you know, that it's always good to push young people, even if it's against their will, to coerce them, to use behaviorism, to use whatever trick you've got in your toolkit to get them to perform to the best of their possible you know, ability on that exam day, that this is an unquestioned good. And actually, you know, there's another girl that I remember um, reading an interview with, I think this was in Ian's book, and she was saying, you know, I worked really hard in my GCSEs and I got really good grades, but I regret that now because I can see that I, I sacrificed my social life and now I don't really feel like I'm very well developed in that area of my life. I've got these grades, but, you know, that's not going to, you know, make me feel I can't hang out with my grades and go to the cinema with them, you know? Um, so there's all kinds of big questions, I think, that remain unresolved here. Mm. But you know what? Um, I have loved this conversation, uh, James, and you can really see that your passion for, for the subject and and I love the you know your your drive to for us to do better for young people and um um so before we wrap up I've got one last question and then I'll ask you the, the final question if I may. Okay. Um if I had a magic wand I give you a magic wand you can shake it and bang we've changed the education system. <laughs> what do you see here, Phil? when you're looking at the education system yeah i love that question i love that sort of like a what if type question um i see i think that it boils down to greater diversity so i would see uh, lots of smaller scale schools i think that schools are far too big so i would see lots of like smaller scale learning communities self-managed learning communities people coming together to meet needs like at particular points in time. And that doesn't have to go on indefinitely, you know? So, so I would see lots of sort of projects that come together and everybody gathers around, for example, you know, let's say the solstice or there's going to be an eclipse or something. There's this big sort of community event where people are looking at, um, you know, at that within schools, I would, I would like to see, um, 
much greater diversity in terms of assessments. I think that we should stop compulsory assessments altogether. And this is a big magic one. You can see I'm waving this around all over the place. Um, amazing. I love it. And I think that you would therefore have to have stage, not age teaching to a certain degree, at least, so that there are kids mixing with other kids of different ages. That's something that Peter Gray talked about as well. It's totally artificial, isn't it? People say, oh, you know, I send my kids to school because then they'll become socialized, you know, and that they won't get that if they're homeschooled. But you get a weird form of socialization at school where you only hang out with kids of your chronological age. And that's, you know, not normal. And it makes people feel, again, very weird. And I still, I don't know if you still feel this now, Fabian, but when I think back, you know, what is it, been 30 years nearly since I was at school. Um, and I still sort of, if I think back to, to those school days, there is still an element of me that sort of like, that sort of feels like I'm in competition with those kids. And there's some, there's some sense of like, I wonder what, what became of them and, and you know, like, then and, and what they'd think of me and all that stuff, you know, and it's like this very sort of like, like school forces you to look over your shoulder and compare yourself to people who are in the same chronological age group, which is a deeply weird and, unhelpful thing so i think that if we had something that was a bit more organic you know uh, stage not age people coming together um to to work on projects um I would, uh, yeah I'll, I'll stop talking now <laughs> that's awesome that i love i love this um, and thank you thank you for dreaming big and and sharing so openly absolutely um, so when i wrap up i always ask my guests if there was one or two things that you, you know that you would like our listeners to take away from our conversation what would this be um to take away from our conversation um i i think that like some of these big questions that that we've been talking about I think that it sort of starts there, you know, it starts with a question. That's the, the end of the piece of thread. And, they, and and it's not something that you can resolve in your own mind. It's a dialogic process, this. It's a thing that we're going to do together. So I would encourage you to start having these questions and having like having conversations with people, wherever you are, with your children, with other adults, with teachers, if you work in a school, with other teachers in your school, and start asking these sort of like these what if type questions. I don't know if you've come across that book uh, from uh, What If to What Is, I think it's called by Rob Hopkins, mm. who's not in education, he's in, in, interested in, you know, um, increasing, you know, sustainable ways of living. It's a wonderful book if you haven't read it, uh, but he's really good at asking these what if questions, you know, imagination type questions like that one. I'd love to spend a bit longer thinking about that. What would it look like? What would it smell like? What would it sound like as you walk through a school of this imagined future? Um, those kinds of questions are important. And I would encourage people to, if you haven't done so already, to join the Rethinking Education Mighty Network uh, and to encourage your friends and colleagues and anyone that you know to do the same, because it's a wonderful thing. Um, and people are coming together and sharing their stories and you know, sharing ideas and being inspired by one another to, to take action in, in small, medium or huge ways. <laughs> 
And so please do that. If you look it up, you, you, if you, if you, um, this, so it works as an app. So you can download the Mighty Networks app and just search for Rethinking Education. Or I guess you'll put a link in the show notes. Hey. Yeah, I'll do that. And I'll also put a note to your podcast so people can listen to the amazing conversations you're also having. So, Wonderful. Uh, thank you very much. No, well, thank you. Thank you for your time and your passion and your energy. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you today. Time Me too. Thank you, Fabienne. And I hope it'll be the first of many such conversations. Yeah, good time. Time is a measure of change.